Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. I am your guest host, Eliza, for this episode. I am a senior linguistics major, Russian minor at UT, and I work with the Institute for the Study of Political Religious Ideation and Influence, ISPRI, as we like to call it, because sometimes we forget what the letters stand for. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. Dr. Miller Idris is an international expert on far right youth movements and a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., where she directs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL. Her newest book is Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right, which discusses how far right movements are recruiting new members in everyday interactions and how we can stop and spot the process of radicalization. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Miller, just thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to be really cool, and it's something that's so so key to talk about and to discuss in the modern world. But at the same time, it's something that a lot of people don't know how to start talking about. Yeah, well, it's hard. I think we're at a very difficult moment to talk about anything political. It's a highly politicized environment. I mean, we're talking about politics all the time, but then talking about politics is just so caught up with a lot of emotions right now. And then people are pulled in a million different directions. And there's a lot of trauma ongoing with the virus. And people are, you know, watching racial injustice protests and a lot, you know, there's there's many different avenues for people's attention. So I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you and happy to dig in wherever. I, I absolutely agree that we're in a very high a high pressure political era at the moment. And I think that the internet and social media has made it so much easier for information to spread, you know, so much faster and for people to publicize their views, whether they're a world leader or, you know, someone who lives in a small village and people's views of the world can differ so much, but everyone can get their views out there if that's what they want to do. So... I am wondering, you know, what kinds of global events and what narratives that we maybe wouldn't expect are creating reactions in local far right scenes and networks today? Yeah, there's some really interesting ones. It's a great question. I, I love the fact that you start right off by asking a question about the global global discourses and the global narratives, because so often when I'm talking to a mostly American or American-situated audience, these things are really rooted in as if this is a problem just in the U.S. or if it's just a problem because of one four-year stretch of a, of a normalization and mainstreaming process in one administration. And I think... Um, you know, a lot of what it's important to bear in mind is that the exponential growth in hate groups started really in the U.S. after Obama was elected. And we are in a situation where we have a 320 percent increase in right wing terror globally over the last five years. So this is a longstanding issue and one that is truly outside of the borders of this particular country. And so no matter what's going on politically in this country, we can expect to be facing this for quite some time to come. And in part, that's because these narratives are not bounded nationally. And so the most obvious one that far-right extremists draw on is the Great Replacement Conspiracy Narrative, which is an overarching conspiracy that unified two previously existing conspiracy narratives across Europe and Eastern Europe and across the U.S. The European one is called Eurabia, which is the conspiracy that there's an orchestrated effort to replace 
white European populations with Muslims through immigration and demographic change and turn Europe into Eurabia, Eurabia. And then the parallel theory in the U.S., the conspiracy theory is called white genocide, which has the same kind of roots and arguments about the demographic change and immigration, the threat posed by demographic change and immigration. But again, that it's been orchestrated by a global global group of elites, often Jewish uh, is the conspiracy theory, or, you know, that it's organized by Jews and other elites who want to replace white civilizations with multicultural ones in ways that pose an existential threat. So that whole narrative is called now the Great Replacement. It unifies those previously two twin kinds of sets of conspiracy narratives, and it has motivated almost all the major terrorist actors over the last several years in Oslo and Christchurch and El Paso and Pittsburgh, where you see people taking what they think and perceive to be heroic action to thwart something that they see as an existential threat, which is coming from demographic change and immigration. So related to that, there's one other one that I want to bring up because it is really interesting in the way that it's used, the narrative frame across Europe and in the U.S., maybe beyond Europe, which would be a question for you if you've seen it in Eastern Europe or Russia, is the the metaphors with Native American populations and reservations. That comes up in a lot of political campaign speeches and rhetoric. Um, The AfD, the Alternative for Germany, for Deutschland has used it. The El Paso shooter used it. We've seen it in other political speeches and slogans. The idea being that white Americans should rise up because of the cautionary tale of what of Native Americans, that there is such a dire and, and imminent threat that they will be, white Americans will be, or white Europeans will be forced onto reservations like Native Americans were, and that they have therefore a right to rise up in righteous anger and violence against against those who are are threatening them as Native Americans did not effectively do against Europeans who invaded them. And so, you know, using that as a cautionary tale and suggesting that this is what happens if we don't rise up, if we white people don't rise up, is I think a common narrative that you see across borders in ways that is surprising because it's drawing on a genocide perpetrated by Europeans to argue that the same kind of thing is, is likely to happen to Europeans if action isn't taken. I don't know. Do you see that in Europe, Eastern Europe or Russia at all? Have you run across it? There are some narratives about Russia being threatened by immigration. More like more often than not, I would say they would probably criticize the the existence of the autonomous republics within Russia, you know, which is kind of the same kind of cognitive dissonance as you'd see criticizing Mm -hmm. the suppression of Native Americans, I'd argue, because like, who do you, you know, who did that to them? It was, it was white people in the first place. But something really interesting actually in Eastern Europe is that a lot of Slavic, but not South Slavic countries. So Russia and Ukraine have risen up to support Kosovo, and they're talking about how it's, you know, there's like a, a Muslim uprising in Kosovo. That's what they're saying. And they're talking about trying to protect it as yeah. kind of this this battleground of, of Islamic versus Christian culture. So that's, yeah, I, I didn't expect it. But it, it's, yeah, it is that's really very interesting. interesting. And I don't know, sometimes I feel bad saying that things like this are interesting. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I know. <laughs> 
Right. It's interesting and horrifying. Right. So that's the way I always feel is people say, congratulations, your research is getting so much, you know, interested. I say, well, it's congratulations or condolences. I'm not actually sure. Like the best thing that could happen is if my research becomes irrelevant, but it's not right now. And I think that's probably how people who work on climate change also feel, you know, who work on like you develop expertise in something that is horrifying and one's interest in the issues always has to be tempered with remembering that it's also horrifying. Did you ever think that you were going to get into this subject? Was this, you know, what you planned to work on? No, never, never. I mean, it was it was not just accidental. It was accidental on multiple levels. You know, I was I was interested in working class youth, I think, and youth who don't go to college, essentially. And so I got really interested. I was a German major. As an undergrad, I got really interested in the German vocational system, where historically about two thirds of young people go through that system instead of to, to college. And I think I just was interested in the idea of alternative pathways and and what it looks like to have a society where you can have quite a prestigious job and and a really good living without ever having gone to college or university, that there are different and multiple ways to have a successful life. And so I studied that. I I, uh, ended up after undergrad, I did an honors thesis looking at the transition of the apprenticeship system into East Germany after unification that involved some original field work that I got funding for my senior year. Then I worked for a year for a professor who was running a demonstration project to see if the American system could incorporate an apprenticeship style system. There was a push at that time under Bill Clinton. He passed something called the School to Work Opportunities Act, which was trying to create American European style apprenticeship and vocational systems that were robust and more wide ranging than traditional vocational training in the in the US. So anyway, I did that for a few years. I worked in that public policy in the in DC and Maryland. And then I went back to graduate school planning to study sort of how civic education works within the vocational system in East Germany and in Poland, looking at a system that had been heavily influenced by the U.S. curriculum in Poland and a system that had been heavily influenced by West Germany or basically just taken over by West German system after unification. So this was 1999. It was, you know, less than a decade after unification. And I was really interested in understanding what is it, what does it look like to transition to a democratic system? What, how is civics teaching incorporated into non-academic bound youth classrooms? And so I headed off to the field for field work in the summer of 1999, summer of two, and I went back in summer of 2000. And as I arrived to do the full field work in vocational schools, I had selected three schools, gotten funding. There was a burst of far-right extremist activity among young people and engagement and far-right violence. And one of the schools was a school for construction, construction trades, where there was really high risk and high participation of youth in that. And so there I was doing an ethnography, hanging around with the civics teachers, spending time in their lounges, going to the trainings that they went to, observing their classrooms and interviewing their students and interviewing the teachers during a year, during an 18 month period when they were really critically concerned about the rise of the resurgent rise of far right extremism and what they could do about it. And so I ended up being kind of an accidental expert on school-based responses to resurgent far-right extremism. And then that second book emerged also from an accident, as I described. Um, I thought I was done with Germany. I was going to go work in a different space. In my tenure statement, I think I proposed working in Lebanon, you know, looking at nationalist and pan-Arab conceptions of belonging in a place where there's French and 
Arabic and different kinds of competing things going on in the schools. And then, you know, happened to go looking for a photograph for the cover of the first book at the uh, request of my editor. And while I was in the archives looking for a photo for that book in a, on a conference trip to Berlin, stumbled on this transformation aesthetically, became completely obsessed with it and couldn't let it go. And so it was a book that kind of took over my life for about eight years, as they describe in the, in the acknowledgments and, and, and really, you know, was hands down kind of a very affirming experience as an academic and made me realize like this is the right place for me to be. And then this most recent book emerged from that of realizing actually synthesizing all of that for a broader audience at this moment in time might be useful because there is a li there are a limited number of people who will buy an academic book or you can just get it from the library and read it when it's about Germany. But situating something for a trade audience in a bigger space is a, more, is a potential to get the message out in a different way and to have conversations with people about the things that I had learned and have the opportunity to share that information in a broader way. So, and understanding the ways that audiences work with different books, the way the bookstores work, the way the libraries work, made it important to write a sort of different kind of book. And that's what the new one is. So that's a convoluted way of saying I never expected to be doing this. Not only because I, I also just didn't expect the extreme to become so mainstream and for the research to become relevant. And so that's been a kind of very strange experience as well. If I'm so if I'm correct, in your new book, you actually said that there's this kind of rising narrative that vocational schooling or deciding to go to trade school is actually kind of promoted within the far-right community because of this conception that academia is corrupt and like tricking the youth, as it were. <laughs> yeah, so there's an anti-higher education bent within the far-right, although I, I'm not sure that I would say that they take it as far to promote trade schools as an alternative. That may come up once in a while. But what they do is, is say, you know, they kind of both attack higher education for being a supposed bastion of the left and brainwashing youth and being what they call, that's another conspiracy theory, a culturally Marxist, you know, extension of the revolution and the attempt to overthrow capitalism and Western systems and civilization. So they believe that the, the, the cultural changes happening you know, within universities around gender studies or transgender bathrooms or, you know, pronouns or a lot of it's around gender, which is interesting. And also around race, anti-racism are ways of chipping away at Western civilization and, and part of a plot to kind of overthrow capitalism and, and existing systems. So on the one hand, there are attacks constantly on higher education. But what I do talk about in this book is that there's also a very clear effort to build intellectual capacity within far-right extremist movements both through the university, but also through alternative ways of producing knowledge. And so they have their own printing presses. To some extent, they run summer camps. They have think tanks and foundations that fund research on race science and eugenics, you know, historically. And so there are ways of supporting research that would continue to contribute to the public discussion and on an intellectual level that you see happening, magazines and websites and knowledge production. And so it's not that they're completely anti-intellectual. In fact, it's, it's attacks on knowledge at the same time as they're trying to produce their own knowledge. I'd actually like to seize on one, one thing that you mentioned. You mentioned that a lot of this, there are a lot of interactions with gender in this scene. So I know that in your newest book, you noted that the incel and the Meninist communities can overlap with white supremacist and racist ideologies because these groups feel that they're owed something they're not receiving, right? 
Since you've done work, you know, in the field, has being a woman, do you think that it's affected your interactions with the scene and the subjects of your research in ways that you could identify? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure that it has, right? So, you know, I won't amplify further any of the harassment that, you know, or or threats or anything like that. Um, But I suspect that, um, you know, people, you know, as we know from gendered reactions to teaching evaluations, right? Um, From gendered reactions to online harassment, almost anything, we know that um, that women are more likely to be harassed and more likely to be bothered. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, you know, it's hard to say because there's no, I don't have a comparative case right next to me to say, like, how is the person who's saying the exact same things been being treated? But I would say, certainly, I think there's enough of that going around to feel like I'm targeted. I think the more interesting thing to me, though, is, and I would say that's kind of expected and par for the course and have had good resources on responding to it. And there are good trainings out there on online harassment and how to protect yourself that I've been lucky to be a part of as well. But the interesting thing is more from other intellectuals, which, you know, so for a long time, I was writing about masculinity, but I wasn't really writing about women's engagement in the movements, but I would often be asked to comment on it or talk about it. And so eventually I just learned about it because I'm asked about it enough, right? I ended up editing a volume on gender and far right and writing, I wrote a report for the Friedrich Ebert Foundation this summer on um, gender and the far right. So eventually just kind of dove in and dug in. But I think sometimes there's an assumption that because I'm a woman that I will automatically be focused on gender. And so then, you know, I get asked to, to comment or, t- or talk about it and for, on a panel, for example, or join, like I'm the person that's supposed to talk about gender. And in the beginning, I'm really like a youth culture expert more than anything else. And I can talk about masculinity and maleness as part of my research. I interviewed almost exclusively young men, but wasn't an expert. And I'm not empirically an expert on how and why young women come and join movements. And so I think I think the assumptions are deep, right? And cut across even among peers and colleagues who who want to lean in, but you know, and and, and are looking for experts and want representation, and then and then lean out and ask those kinds of questions. And so I, it didn't bother me. It just was sort of always perplexing. Like I'm not probably the right person to ask for that. So why don't you ask, you know, this person? And so, but then eventually now I do feel like more of an expert in that area because after several years of that happening, I finally just leaned in and did some of those reports and those book chapters and edited volumes and, and have learned a lot myself, but certainly not my main area of expertise. I mean, I'm curious, I'll toss it back to you actually about, you know, do you perceive as a, as a young woman doing field work or research, you think that you perceive differently as a woman than, than you would be or than your peers are who are not doing this research? Honestly, probably people are more surprised, you know, that I would choose to study fascism, I guess. I mean, my mom hates it. Yeah. But, um, right, 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 right. I think I actually, yeah, I've looked at, there are some things that, I think that probably some of my my research mentors have been very, very protective of me, which I appreciate, you know, and it's it's great to know that I have these people that are looking out for me and they want to mm-hmm. make sure I'm okay because some of the stuff, you know, by nature of what we study, it's going to be really, truly ridiculous. There was one point early on where I had just actually started this. Yes. What what started as a yes. side project and what ended up being what I focus on, which is so kind of the same way that it worked for you. 
where I was learning about the symbolism of what what was on t-shirts, what was on tattoos, just <laughs> right. non yeah. non-vocal symbols of identification. And I got this five volume encyclopedia of Russian yeah. prison tattoos. Yeah. And when the lab ordered that, uh, we didn't know that they were all over the body. And I mean, all over the body. So <laughs> um, when I, when I mentioned that kind of offhandedly, <laughs> Dr. Right. Roberts, who I've been working with pretty closely for ISPRI was like, Oh my God, are you serious? Wait, <laughs> he felt, I don't know. He was so like concerned about me and I was yeah. like, I'm okay. I mean, I'm 22, which sounds like such a 22 year old thing to be like, I'm fine. I'm 22. I'm not a kid anymore. But like, I mean, it's yeah. out there. Yeah, and no. yeah, I think, yeah. Sometimes I wonder if I was, if I was a man, would people be as quick to question whether I really want to do this? Yeah, I think one of the things that's happened to me is because I've always held part of my line as a professor of education, that's like a totally explainable gendered way, right? Like for people in terms of the stereotypes and assumptions, like, oh, of course, I care about schools and teachers and school-based responses to extremism. And it's the caring side and the prevention and the intervention side of the field. So, you know, I'm also doing like the youth culture side of the field. But I'm not, I'm not a person who's studying the harder core. I'm not the Hillary Pilkington or the Kathy Blees. And I think, you know, there are other women scholars out there who have been studying the harder core and I think have faced that. Although Kathy Blee also studied women in the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, really pushed a lot of research on gender and the far right to the fore. Um, but Hillary Pilkington, who was doing ethnographies with, with Russian skinheads um, for many years, I think really did face a lot of this kind of expectations about gender and norms. Um, so I think, you know, I think one of the things I find actually is that because I'm based in DC, um, I get invited to a lot, or I used to get invited to a lot of in-person meetings. Now they're virtual, but you know, downtown basically, like all various agencies and conversations about the far right. And those are overwhelmingly, or not just far right about terrorism and extremism, they're overwhelmingly rooms full of men. And so that's where I notice it the most actually, is as soon as you get down into Congress, policymakers, um, the Hill or State Department or any of the justice, you know, any of those departments, and you're talking about terrorism or extremism, there are almost no women there. And then on top of that, I'm a woman there who's talking about education and the caring side of it or bringing up the issue of masculinity. You know, it's a lot of like former military, former intelligence folks um, kind of in those rooms. And so that's where those are the places I feel my gender and my sex most keenly, not so much in the academic circles um, and not as much on, in terms of the way, I mean, I'm sure there are ways in which I take more, more harassment as a woman, um, but I think it's, it's interesting that the place I have felt it most keenly is in the policy circles. I mean, those are, yeah, unfortunately they are very yeah. historically gendered spaces. Hopefully that will change, but... Yeah, I was just, I was thinking too about, you know, kind of what your thoughts are about generational differences in, you know, in the scholarship too, because one of the things I find, I mean, my entire team is half my age and I love it. Like, it's just so great in that lab to see how, you know, what it's like to have digital natives investigating this stuff, 
you know, the, their, the way they think about platforms, the way they think about social media, the way they engage and are working on TikTok and that kind of stuff um, is just really different than when I'm working with my peers on campus who are a generation older than me. Cause I'm kind of in that sandwich generation where you could have people who are 22, 24 on my team. And then I have people who I'm colleagues with who are 70, right? And I'm sort of right in the middle. And so I see both ends of it. And so, yeah, I'm curious about if that, if that experience affects you too and what your perception is generationally in the field so far. Well, so the lab that I work in at UT, which is called ISPRI, it's the Institute for the Study of Political Religious Ideation and Influence. I am not like 100% sure on the last I, but the rest of it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, we're run by two, by doctors Avramov and Roberts. And then there's a lot of, there's a couple of grad students and some undergrads like me. I think we're all upperclassmen, but I think it's ideal, honestly, having a mix of generations because, I mean, sometimes we do work at different speeds and there's no there's no fault to that. But it is, you know, good to be able to know the ins and outs of how to search to find a, a sketchy PDF of something you need to read. But it's great, I think, having some of us that can do that a little bit faster. And then I'll see something that a phrase that looks like it might mean something, but I don't know. And they can just pull it out of their brain because they know they've had they've been working with this for so long and it, they just understand the constellation of knowledge in a way that I don't. So that's really great. I, I like it a lot. One thing I do think, though, about my generation of researchers, probably starting a few years, a few years before I was born, I'm 1998, I think this I don't know, I guess I'd call it a super generation maybe exists. I mean, and it's not fun, but it's those of us who were born and grew up in the era of terrorist violence, which is widely televised and publicized. And I think that regardless of personal experience, regardless of personal political beliefs, probably all of us are, you know, like traumatized to it by some extent because it's at the point where we've grown up with it and it's not really shocking unless it happens like in my in my city, in my state. So I think that it'll be interesting to see in terms of what we study, how actions evolve when the window of normality is shifting so, so, so far towards violence. But I wonder what we'll be able to understand with our different viewpoint. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I also think there's, I mean, nobody knows yet what the generation, the Corona generation, you know, is going to be affected by. It's slightly older. Like, I think we did have this whole post 9-11 generation. And that, you know, I was like the tail end of the Cold War. Like I was in high school senior when the wall came down. And I remember sitting in German class, watching it live. You know, I was taking college German classes while I was a high school senior. And so, I remember being at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, sitting in that class and, you know, the, the professor wheeling in a television and watching it. And um, so I think, you know, I think each of us are affected by some of these major issues. And I do wonder how the kind of conspiracy theories and the pandemic of this moment will affect a whole new generation as well. So anyway, it's just something I often wonder about. Well, so if we think about normalization of violence on a larger scale, that we can see for sure culturally how that reflects in things that we do for fun. Like MMA was legalized in the 90s, right? I think I think John McCain tried to ban it because yeah. he thought it was inhumane. So, yeah. I mean, the way that what we're doing for fun, well, not we, 
the way yeah, that... the fastest growing, right? The fastest growing sport in the world, supposedly. I mean, who knows what that statistic is based on, but that's, it's repeatedly described as the fastest growing sport in the world. And, and it is an inherently violent sport. So it is a really interesting point too. Have you heard anything ever about European martial arts, really? I mean, MMA is, is based in jujitsu mostly, right? Striking and grappling. Have you ever heard any, you know, white supremacists say anything about having a martial art that's not yeah. not white to begin with? No, I mean, there's there are a couple of different things, though, that are really interesting. So one is that there is this, you know, sometimes there's a narrative about Asian, Japanese culture and arts as also having a kind of parallel superiority. And um, so that narrative kind of sometimes translates through. And then there are some, you know, sort of more American or Western versions like boxing that are also really popular in the scenes. But I haven't ever come across anybody pointing that out specifically, that basically they're co-opting and adopting cultural forms of physical fighting and expression that are not rooted in Western traditions. And that is a really interesting contradiction. Be curious to know if anybody talks about it. Again, my my absolute theory is that if white men, white supremacist men, that is not all white men, feel that they have this God-given or Hyperborea-given global historical dominance, then it doesn't really matter because I'm sure they could twist history some way to claim that they came up with it in the first place. You know, there are people going around saying that, that the Buddha was white. But actually, one question I have about that to rewind when you were talking about American white supremacism and how people will use Native Americans as an example of a suppressed group. I know that there are American white supremacist movements that push to mm-hmm. create an ethno state within America, right? Like a white separatist state. I am wondering, I mean, not, not to, I'm not just trying to sound flippant, but do they ever think about going back to their own country since they feel that homelands are so significant to them? I know that's a big part of your newest book, the power of sacred spaces to a people. Yeah. And they don't have a historical yeah. connection to this land. What's interesting is what you'll hear are uh, folks in the U.S. using the phrase European heritage as a kind of proxy. And part that is, I think, a reflection of the fact that there's there's it's hard for people like they may think they have Germanic roots or Norwegian roots or something. But a, a lot of people are kind of, you know, just blended um, immigrants, you know, over over the the centuries here. Um, and so unless you have a really clear family history, I think they often don't know. And then of course they're quite, um, you know, most, most the far right, they're not like exactly multilingual and speaking, you know, and studying multiple languages are going on. So I think, you know, you don't hear it that much. You do hear European heritage. You hear the desire to form alliances with European white supremacist extremist movements. You see a lot of copying of tactics and strategies and even iconography and messages across identitarian movements, for example. You'll see um, American white supremacists going to Ukraine to fight in white supremacist kind of militia groups, for example, and getting training and bomb making. They travel to these tournaments and festivals. They used to travel and still do to music festivals. That's been big for decades, um, far-right music festivals. So there's a lot of a lot of different ways that they connect with Europe, you know, and, and related to that, I would just say about the ethno state is that 
the, the irony in some way of drawing on the Native American experience to justify, you know, border closures or deportations or so-called remigration because of the risk of turning into, you know, of white civilizations turning into kind of threatened populations is also related, I think, in a way to using other narratives. So you'll see the far right and white supremacist groups say things like, you know, they are the true multiculturalists because what they want is an ethno state for every group. And they want, they're, they're trying to preserve um, and um, protect cultures rather than let them just get blended into something that's no, no longer detectable. And so you hear kinds of things like that. There's even been um, sort of alt-rights, uh, so-called alt-right kind of individuals and groups who have look to Wakanda, like a fictional, mythical Hollywood-created um, land of a, that's a homeland, you know, in Africa as a, as a kind of um, example for what a white ethnostate could be. So there's a lot of kind of strange contradictions there where the models that are compared to, they don't see the contradictions in that to, to look at the experience of ethnic minorities, whether in a fantasy world or in a very real genocide, and compare that to, to the goals and the fears of their own movement. It's just so, I don't know. I Do you ever have to just take a step back and try to reframe the way you think to be like, how does this make sense to them? Because of course, to a certain degree, no matter who you're studying, you have to humanize your subject, right? To be able to give them a fair yeah. analysis. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of my research is rooted in a in an inability to really understand something and just wanting to try and see if I can make it comprehensible. And so one of those examples is is just this idea of territorial entitlement and belonging that I just don't feel, you know, but some people do seem to feel very, very strongly about ownership over geography and a sense of entitlement to this land, even though it was stolen from other people, right? I mean, and so it's puzzling, right? And I think when something is puzzling, I don't understand it. And so let's try to understand and figure that out. And so I think a lot of my work is animated by that feeling like there are puzzles, there are contradictions that I don't understand. So it's a constant process of like taking a step back and then actually trying to understand like how could someone, and so, you know, understanding, okay, there are emotional yearnings here around the desire to be a part of something bigger and better than themselves or the sense of isolation and lack of belonging, lack of a meaning or sense of purpose, the desire to rebel against people who you think have betrayed you and anger at grievances that are actually genuine and real against adults or mainstream society combined with underlying racism and growing up in a kind of structurally racist or systemic racist society. So I think, you know, those that, so under, so that's sort of developing empathy, but also a deep understanding of how this toxic mix kind of comes about so that I can kind of understand that sense of territorial entitlement and territorial belonging or a desire for that and the fantasies about it, even if it's not, not as an excuse for behavior, but as an explanation, I guess. I think that people that are at risk of falling prey to white supremacist ideology are young, disenfranchised males, right? Mostly males who may not be successful in their personal lives or their work lives. And as a result, they feel like someone is taking this opportunity away from them. And that's often incorrectly, of course, kind of tangled in with just perception of heightened migration rates as 
a threat to their community, right? I know that more than a quarter of Germany's population today has a migrant background. And since 2019, there's been like a 2.1% increase in population with migrant backgrounds. And that's the smallest increase annually since 2011. So of course, it's not, you know, their thinking isn't logical and it's not correct that they're being threatened by these immigrants. I mean, how, I don't know, does... Has, ever, has anyone ever explained, tried to talk you through it? <laughs> tried to get you to see their light, as it were? Oh, yeah. I get poems, original poems from white supremacists who think they could, in prison. Yeah, like, I mean, yes, they think they can convert me. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> it is. I mean, more than harassment, actually. It's, it's. Uh, I think... Um, I've gotten more, you know, oh, you, 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 the error of your ways, like, let's, you know, um, and, and, and that's part of like understanding that they believe so deeply, like in such a deep and polarized way that they, they can't possibly see in me anything other than not just a traitor, um, to my race, but also someone who's just gone fundamentally astray, right? And so if I'm only introduced to the right materials, whether it's in an original poem or a song or, right, like, this is what you should read, right? Like, let me get some suggestions. And that may be gendered as well, some patronizing kind of, like, you couldn't possibly, you know, be smart enough on your own. Like, you just, you need some coaching or some advice and some advising. So, yeah, they definitely think that, that I, that I'm just wrong and that I need to be advised on this. So <laughs> they suggest I read. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have the examples right in front of me, but they'll be like hyperlinks or just suggestions to read stuff or really like their original texts, right? Emails, long emails with lots of, you know, diatribes in them that are sometimes angry, but not always angry, like often just more patronizing than angry. And or just, you know, I'm in a, I'm a cultural elite, I'm a Washington elite, a coastal elite who just doesn't understand or I'm part of the conspiracy and this is why I have to be corrected and fixed. So yeah, I, I definitely get that all the time. And I think that's, um, I think that that's common. Um, and um, I think it goes to show kind of how deeply entrenched people's belief systems are when they really are just in that, down that rabbit hole, really believe that, that I need to be enlightened. It's kind of interesting that you know, at the same time as these people are working to, while they're working to radicalize you, you're working on a project to de-radicalize youth, right? I'd actually love to hear more about that. I mean, I, I don't know if it's something that you can just, if there's like a, an easy way to answer, you're still testing, right? But how do you, how do you de-radicalize someone? How do you teach someone to walk away from so much hate? So, you know, I should say that there are there are a lot of people who work on de-radicalization or countering violent extremism. And I see my work happening way before that process would happen, meaning that just like I'm empirically interested in at the hardcore, you know, I am glad other people are out there studying youth at the hardcore, but I want to know how they get access to those ideas. Where are the gateways when they enter? What are the ways that exposure happens? How do we create off-ramps really early on in the process? 
And one way to do that is to preventatively inoculate people um, is the language that we use in our lab before they ever encounter those messages. So trying to help understanding that, you know, statistically 25% of online gamers encounter white supremacist content while gaming, probably those numbers are much higher for kids just encountering memes, racist memes, white supremacist content, anti-Semitic ideas out there in the world and social media. And so trying to understand how we can help people, young people, but also adults recognize propaganda and misinformation, understand the rhetorical strategies of persuasive rhetoric, and start to understand what that looks like so that when you see it, you understand, oh, this is what this video is doing and trying to get me to be vaccine hesitant, or this is what this, you know, meme is doing and trying to get me to see a scapegoat for the virus, or, you know, that there are certain techniques that repeat themselves across extremist movements and, and conspiracy theories. And so we're working on a series of interventions, testing them that would basically try to preventatively help people recognize not just susceptible people themselves, but we have a series of toolkits that we're testing for adults who work with youth. So um, impact studies running on parents and caregivers guides and teachers guides, mental health counselors, coaches. We want to do one for mixed martial arts trainers to, so that people in those gateway spaces will recognize some of the early signs of radicalization and have some idea of what resources are out there so that they can be better partners in kind of interrupting these processes before it becomes so far down the pathway that you're talking about de-radicalization and disengagement, which is much harder, um, very thin evidence on whether it's effective, and, and also just very difficult to initiate. So people do de-radicalize and disengage from movements, and when they are ready to do that, they need resources, they need mental health counseling, they need, it's like coming out of a cult, right? They need help processing what they're doing and building a new life and sometimes making amends, right? All the kinds of things that they go through. But but it's very difficult to initiate that and to get somebody to start down that path until they're ready to do it. And so what we see is the de-radicalization and CBE programming kind of world, which is trying to target the harder core, has its own role and importance at addressing and providing support for the hardcore, but we need to put a lot more time and effort into the, what we call kind of pre-preventative strategies to address this before it begins. So that's what we're doing in the lab. Thank you. I actually have one more like super quick question, if that's okay. What's a common misconception that you hear about far-right movements that is something you'd like to combat that you think is... Yeah you know, dangerous. Great question. I think a common mistake that people make at the policy level and in law enforcement and among a lot of communities is is thinking that the primary problem is in groups. And so there's a lot of discussion about how to move forward with domestic terrorism legislation and designating some of these groups, foreign terrorist organizations, for example, which are important conversations to have. But I think remembering that the majority of radicalization right now is probably happening not through groups, but through individuals who are kind of self-radicalizing in toxic online spaces or by encountering things online, some of which is promoted and produced by groups. And so groups aren't unimportant. But major terrorist acts over the last several years, none of them have come from people who are card-carrying members of a group. So it's different from Islamic State or, you know, kind of Islamist-style terrorism in terms of there being cells and direction from above and a hierarchy 
And so we really do have to look more at the cultural spaces and try to understand what's happening in those spaces if we want to intervene in that and prevent that kind of violence because it's impossible to monitor everybody. You know, that's a little different on the anti-government side where there are more groups in the militia movement, patriot militia movement, but on the white supremacist side, that radicalization is largely happening, particularly for youth in unstructured ways. And so I think that that's, everybody wants to know what what are the groups, you know, what are the most dangerous groups? Who's Who should the government be paying attention to? There are groups, but I think that's not the primary thing that I'm worried about. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was amazing. <laughs> You're welcome. And yeah, sorry, I have to efficiently cut it off uh, in time to jump on another call, but it's been a really interesting conversation and I'm glad that it worked out. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at